All right, welcome to a very special edition of uh, Inappropriate Earl, because uh, I'm interviewing the man who probably helped pay for this equipment I'm using right now. No. Um, he is, uh, it's under kind of sad circumstances. Um, unfortunately, uh, Robin Williams passed away uh, yesterday, and uh, Rob's one of the few people who actually knew him and worked with him and helped uh, create the San Francisco comedy scene. So, well, uh, it's just, first of all, you know, he created it. I mean, he really, I mean, if Robin, we were lucky enough to have a comedy scene up there. I and mean, that's how, what an amazing, brilliant light he was at. Um, uh, we had uh, a chance to have careers because of the wake he left behind. I mean, literally, we would have audiences show up at the comedy clubs in the hopes that he would, you know, pop in. And more times than not, he did. And then you'd, you know... You'd have an audience there, uh, and people would just, you know, just anybody on the street, it just spread like wildfire, and the next thing you know, the club would be packed. And then they'd usually leave with them. <laughs> but occasionally, you, you know, that was the tough thing, having to go on. Nobody could follow that guy. Nobody. And it was, uh, it was a real force of nature. I mean, thinking about, you know, just the idea, the, the sentence, you know, Robin Williams commits suicide, it seems like an insane... The words don't even make sense coming out of your mouth. It's like Robin Williams killing himself. It's like, it's as crazy as Richard Pryor setting himself on fire. It just, you know, it happened, but it just still doesn't, doesn't make sense to you. And unfortunately the old comedic stereotypes about the sad clown and everything start to reemerge their, uh, ugly head. And, um, that's, uh, the tough part, you know, cause, um, that is, a, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot of pressure. And I think there's psychically, it does come at a cost, but it's, uh, you know, you don't want to think about comedians being all depressed. And unfortunately, that's one of the, the I, I guess today, the day after, one of the ramifications that's going to be felt for a while. Well, I think people just assume people like you, your fame level, Robin, have no problem. Well, I certainly never had the fame level that, that Robin had. Uh, I don't compare myself to that. But, you know, yeah, well, you think, I mean, now that guy made it. I mean, who could have been more successful than him? I mean, very, I mean, a handful of guys have switched over from um, comedy to drama. And, you know, to for a comedian to win an Academy Award, I mean, I, don't, I can't even... Think of another one, to be honest with you. I remember Dudley Moore got nominated for an Academy Award for Arthur, but didn't win. And like, it's, uh, it's very, uh, he, he was a rare bird. He was a, um, a guy who, who could really, really do it all. But he, he did have that, um, you know, that uh, explosiveness to him in his career, which was like, you won't see it again. And I was thinking about that and talking to a friend of mine about that earlier today, how uh, Gilbert Gottfried, uh, how in France, you know, you're allowed to do different things as an artist. You know, like um, I was talking to my buddy Peter Riegert from Animal House, and he was saying uh, after he did Local Hero with uh, Burt Lancaster, a great film, 1983, um, Bert, you know, uh, Peter Riegert was the guy in Animal House. He played Boone from Animal House, who, hilarious, great guy, great actor. And then he did this amazing movie, with uh, Bill Forsyth in um, called Local Hero, starring Burt Lancaster, and his uh, his French actress said to him, "You know, Peter, if uh, if you 
you know, did that in France, you'd never stop working, you know, because they want to see you do different stuff in other countries. They want to see you, you know, if you do comedy, they want to see you do drama. If you do drama, they want to see you do comedy. They want you could do a period piece. You know, Gerard Depardieu in France could do, you know, a sex farce, could do a, and then could also play, you know, Napoleon's, uh, a colonel in Napoleon's army in a serious period piece. So it's just different. And I, I think, I don't know, just uh, culturally, it's a different um uh, demands on it. Here in the United States, you get pigeonholed. You do one thing and they only want you to do that. And how dare you think about doing anything else? And you get criticized for it. But he's one of the guys who pulled it off because of his, his, you know, his mastery and his, uh, you know, his own, um, incredible talent. And you guys were supposed to talk last week. I'm I'm producing this. He's, his show just got canceled on CBS, uh, a few months back. And I had a show, what, uh, two years ago that was just canceled after about the same amount of episodes he did. And um, I wanted to offer him what I'm doing, just an independent sitcom that he could be as funny, do exactly what he wants, have complete creative control. We'd support him 100% and he'd be in ownership with us. And I'm going to do that for, you know, for, uh, you know, several shows with other comedians, like I'm doing it for myself now on my show called Real Rob. And, um, but I didn't want to really bug him about it until I got, you know, the show sold and get further down the line so he can see a successful uh, scenario for himself. And But he was one of the guys, my main guy that I wanted to reach out to. And he was lovely. The, the last time I saw him, you know, he just made sure I had his new number and wanted to next time, her, next time you come up, I'll have lunch and her, just give me a call. And so, you know, I called him uh, when I was playing at a club and I said, no pressure. If you want to come down, come on down, uh, you know. But you just come down and watch if you want. You don't have to jump on stage because, you know, everybody's always asking him stuff. And I didn't want to be one of those guys who was just bugging him. Um, but he's always very kind and generous. I mean, the last time he came to see me perform at uh, uh, the Frock, which is a theater up in San Rafael, he came down and he watched me. And he came and he, I've been performing this bit where it's like, you know, women are thinking about, things constantly, even during sex. And I act out this thing and it's a big ender and I've been killing with that thing. And I, you know, I've retired it, you know, you have to retire bits after a while. And, um, it was one of the last places I did it and he came up to me and he had a funnier take on that. So yes, or no, you know, because it'd be distracted. It's like, uh, and this, Oh, jewelry, jewelry, oh, focus, focus, jewelry. And he came up with another couple of things, you know, for a woman to, you know, to undistract them. You know, like, uh, and I've been doing that bit for about a year and a half. And I didn't think of that. But he just, he thought of that first time he saw it. So he could take something and make it and figure it out and make it uh, and find out what would kill about it. And that was the, he had that killer instinct, which was, you know, some comedians you can have it. Like you could have your killer bit, but he knew how to take something and murder with it. And that was, you know, something that like, one of the things I wanted to talk about with you today and get off my chest was the pressure that he must have been under all the time to be like, you know, for people to say he's the funniest guy in the world, the greatest stand up and, and to have to, you know, follow through with that. And then, um, more times than not deliver that kind of pressure day in, day out, every time he jumped on stage. I don't have that pressure. No one's looking at me the same way. I mean, I have pressure, but I just, it's taken me, I just got back into doing stand up about five years ago. And it's like, let me turn that fucking thing off. Hang on. Uh, 
And you know, I must say, you use fantastic openers. Thank you, Earl. You're great. No, no, no. Thank you. Uh, it wasn't for you. Uh, I probably would have quit comedy four or five years ago. And, uh, you know, you've been incredibly uh, gracious. You're a great man. You're a terrific comic, and you're fun to have around. You're just kind of fucking... No, no. I respect you immensely for... Uh, Getting your own show, you know, after CBS, uh, I thought kind of dicked you over. Uh, I mean, the ratings still for your show are higher than any show that has been on since your show. And uh, well, it's um, the way I look at that is so you gotta, um, it's like being invited to a, uh, you know, a wedding or something. You know, it's a beautiful room, it's nice, but you know that there's a certain time. They got to bring somebody else in. Another wedding comes in. Or, you know, you get a beautiful hotel suite and some vacation. And, you know, it's only, uh, you know, you're not going to spend the rest of your life there. So you got to appreciate its environs. And, and, and it's, you know, and I get it. I mean, it's a business. It's a, and it's a cutthroat business. I mean, if they can, you know, if CBS can cancel Robin Williams uh, after one season, they could certainly as hell cancel Rob Schneider. And they did. They canceled me and they canceled him. But I, I think it's kind of, you know, why I'm so psyched about this show is like I get to do exactly what I want and I can be as, you know, you still, I mean, the, the rule of it is it just has to be great. And I have the opportunity to be great at this because um, there are no rules and this, I'm paying for it and the decisions are made are, you know, by the creative people, you know, and right now we, we shot it. Now we're editing it. We wrote it as funny as we wanted it to be. We didn't edit ourselves in as much as censor ourselves uh, as far as trying to think about what the markability is and the advertisers. When you're doing a TV show, you have the, you have the network notes, you got the studio notes, and then you have advertisers. So, I mean, there was a book written by Sid Caesar, because, uh, you know, one of the comedy icons who's passed away now. But Sid Caesar from the show of shows, he was talking about if you can do a TV show. I mean, there's a great old-timers poker game. Norby Walters had an old timer poker. I don't know if he still does, but, um, and I got to meet, you know, Sid Caesar, you know, Charles Durning, you know, um, and Harvey Corman at this place. And, you know, he'll, they'll all tell stories. And I read his book, Sid Caesar's book. And I got to talk to him about that. And he said, if you can make a sitcom and in any way, shape or form, it comes out close to in any way, what you originally, um, uh, you know, um, tried to accomplish with it, uh, then that's a huge accomplishment because it, it barely, uh, you know, comes out in the form at all what you started with. And that's true. You just get, uh, it gets garbled and becomes, you take a steak and you turn it into some kind of hamburger and you go, what the hell is that? You know, but it happens. That's just part of the process. And I'm glad I'm not doing it anymore. I mean, you seem happier doing your own thing. Playing by your rules instead of like, sort of rules. Or- yeah, there's a lot less money though. I mean, it's in, in the sense of I'm having to pay, put out seven weeks in a row. I work seven day weeks, and uh, I don't say it with pride. I just say it with like exhaustion. I worked Monday through Friday on the um, real Rob, and then I would fly to uh, a place like a casino, a club or wherever I could, I was getting money. And then I would take that money for the Friday, Saturday, come back Sunday and then go back to work 6 a.m. Monday uh, and take the money and just throw it into the show. I mean, that's how, you know, we were over budget. It was, uh, you know, uh, but I mean, I'm proud of it. And I just said, let's make this thing work. There's no failure is not an option. And uh, I'm really proud of it. it. It came out really good. And you're in it. Thanks for being in it. Can I ask you a serious question? Yeah. 
was I maybe the worst actor you've ever seen? <laughs> no, I wish I would have given you more notes. You're solid. You're good. You're funny. You're naturally funny. I just wish I, I should. I was looking at the stuff and I went, I should have pushed you more. But I just like, also, I was like, I just wanted you to have fun that day and it's fine. You know? Uh, I might be the worst actor outside of Stallone. <laughs> no comment. Still, he's still hanging in there. Oh, he's doing okay for himself. Yeah. But that dying scene you had with him in the Judge Dredd. I mean. Well, I told him. First of all, I died in the original, and I remember having a conversation with Stallone. God, this is a twenty-year-old story now. It was practically twenty years ago today that we did that scene, and it really was um, kind of traumatic because I had told him before. I told the director. I remember telling the. I got there early on the set because I said the scene's just not. I remember he told me about it. He said, hey, listen, there's a scene we're going to do, and they're going to do a, uh, well, you, you're going to die. You know, you die dead scene. And I say to you, you know, you got to tell me, uh, you know, hey, Dread, you are the law. And uh, I went, you know, and my, I, my, you know, my stomach fell down to my fucking feet. And I was like, oh, God, that's going to be the corniest fucking thing. And it's going to, people are going to laugh at it. And uh, so I, but he said, but then he said to me, I wrote it. I wrote it myself. It's like, and you know, when, um, you know, when Adrian sells Rocky, win, do me one favor, Rocky, win, Talia Shia, win. And it's like, oh fuck. So I know he's emotionally attached to this line now. So here I go. And so I get there early in the day because I said, well, this isn't going to work. And I, I, when an actor's been on a movie for a few months, you know, you can get away with a little bit more. They can't fire you because it'd be too expensive. So an actor mentally, you kind of know that, you know, after about four months of filming, there's no fucking way they could fire me now. Cause he got four. I've been shooting since July and it's November or whatever, October. And, uh, so cut to, I get there early. Cause I'm going to say, Hey, listen, I'm not saying this line. So I had the producers there, Bo Marks, great guy. And I go, uh, Hey Bo, so I want to let you know there might be a little bit of trouble today because there's a little thing. I just want to let you know. don't worry about it, man. We'll fix it. We'll talk to Danny, the director. Danny Cannon, who's a great guy. He said, we'll talk to Danny. We'll just work it out. You know, he's an American guy. And Danny Cannon is like a, you know, uh, it's like working with Michael Caine. You know? Oh, so anyway, so, you know, so I go to uh, Danny and I said, Danny, we might have a problem. So what with what? I said, what the line, you know, Sly, Sly wants me to say this thing like, Dread, you are the law as I'm dying. And I said, people are going to laugh at that. And I said, no, nah, we'll just, you know, we won't, we'll cut it, you know, or we'll just say it and we'll cut around it. You don't have to use it. And I just said, you don't have the final cut on this picture. Stallone does. If I say that fucking line, it's in. And I'm just telling you, that's a shitty line. And it just, it's just, it's blah, blah, blah. Anyway, cut to Sly comes onto the set. <laughs> he doesn't even know what we're doing that day. What are we shooting? What are we shooting? I said, well, you're shooting until Fergie dies. Me, Fergie, you're dying. I said, okay. Uh, All right, okay, you got to say that line. And I went like, uh, Sly, and then immediately I start caving. How, uh, uh, we, we rehearsed the line, and, and then I don't say it. And he says, you got to say the line. And I went, well, and immediately I start caving. Like, well, how emotionally attached to it are you? <laughs> You just say the fucking line. And I remember seeing his, his the veins in his in Rocky's neck coming out. And I say the fucking line. And then I went, oh, fuck. Well, here I am, you know. And then I see Danny, the director, you know, kind of cowardly behind Sly with, you know, doing the scissors things like, well, cut it. Don't worry. We'll cut. And I said, fuck you. You know, as soon as I, and I knew I'd like, as soon as I said, I'm fucking dead. So we do the scene. They put the fucking, you know, the bullet pack on me. I get shot. I'm fucking bleeding. He's cradling me in his arms. And I swear to God. 
It's one of the, you know, as an actor, I've never had this moment before or since where I, the guy, I'm in his arms and he's squeezing my head, like signaling me like I'm a fucking puppet. Like, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a ventriloquist dummy, like, okay. And then like, wait a minute. And then the woman comes out and sprays the fucking menthol in his eyes. So he gets what eye tear, eye, you know, eye watery tearing up, spraying it. Get the other fucking eye. And then he's squeezing my head like, all right, okay. Give me the fucking line, you know, and then I, and then I, I didn't I didn't say it, and he literally just throws me off him on the floor and like he got another fucking line. Anyway, you're bringing up a very traumatic story. So anyway, of course I say the line, and then uh, what happens is, um, <laughs> I say the line, and then uh, I said, you know. They're going to fucking use this and then I'm, it's going to, you know, they're going to laugh at it. Cut to six months later, whatever, they do a, uh, an audience test um, or they do it with like, it was like a screening for, I don't know if it was for the press or a test or whatever. Anyway, they, they do this fucking screening. And, you know, when I say dread, you are the law and, and I die, they laughed. And then he's like, we're going to reshoot this thing. And I said, you know, so anyway, cut to he's shooting assassins with um, Banderas up in Seattle. They fly me up there on the Saturday. And I said, well, okay, fly me up there, but you got to make sure I get a flight back home because I'm going up there and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I go up there. He makes the crew shoot during lunch. Oh, yeah. Hey, by the way, guys, lunch today. No lunch. You're shooting him. So they shot me in front of a fucking, in front of the the garage. Literally, there was like a fucking, uh, you know, a a door that was shot on the fucking whatever stage that was up there. They shot me against the garage door of the fucking stage. uh, Like, I'm still alive. And they cut around it. And they gave me uh, two takes. And then see you later. And then they didn't arrange a flight for me to get out of there. And that was it. And then... Anyway, so we cut to like the press screening and then, you know, which was better received, you know, um, than when they were first laughing at it with the death scene. And I, and Sly came up to me, what do you think, man? And I said, well, I, uh, new ending. You like the new ending? I said, what do you think? And I said, I think it would have been a lot better if you didn't fucking have me, if you would have listened to me and not had me die the first time. Oh, what the fuck? Da, da, da. And he never admitted I was right. And that was the last conversation I ever had with him. Well, I will say that the remake of Judge Dredd was awful. I didn't see it, but I heard it was humorless. I mean, truthfully, it's a tough fucking thing. You know, it's tough to make a fucking comic book. I I mean, I'll say this about that movie. And, you know, I was very happy to have the work. I was very glad that he hired me. And I'm still grateful to him about that. You know, just that was just an experience I had. A lot of of good ones. That was just an experience where he saw something. We saw it differently as, you know, two guys trying to make a movie. Two actors and, and he's the big fucking star. It's his movie. So, you know, um... But you can you can be with comic books and shit too true to the original character and fuck yourself. Like, you know, the cod piece, maybe it worked in the cartoon, but doesn't necessarily work with a fucking guy wearing it on stage. I remember as a somebody took a fucking picture of me. First day shooting that scene, he comes out with his big brass cod piece, which I actually have. He gave to me after this thing was hanging on his cock for six months. He's here, you can take this. You want this here? And I still have it somewhere. And uh he said, uh, I said, I just remember looking at it and somebody took a picture of me and I said, we're sunk. This whole picture sunk. This represents costume wise what we're going to do with the rest of this movie. We're dead. But it was fun, you know, shooting a picture in England 20 years ago as a 30 year old kid, you know, uh, well, 
with yeah, one of the. I mean, that guy used to stop traffic. I mean, I mean, literally, we'd walk down the street and uh, in you know, in um, where the hell was that part of town? Uh, you know, not High Park, but uh, just just right down downtown and um, in the center of town, we'd walk. You know, uh, down and literally, traffic would stop. People, yeah, people would get out of the car and be hundreds of people. I remember one time his bodyguard was like, you know, first of all, he did actually need a bodyguard. He needed one, you know, because people would swamp him. And um, he said, help Sly get to the car. And it was like 150 people around us. And I remember getting, helping Sly get to the car was basically impossible because I was like getting sm- smashed myself. I got back in the car with him finally. We got back in the limo. And he said, I said, holy shit, was that scary to you? That was nothing. You should have been in France. You should have seen. In France, there was like 150,000 people. So it's just, in a way, it was, for me, it was really interesting to see a gigantic star still at his, you know, peak. You know, he just had, you know, Demolition Man and, you know, another good movie, which was Cliff, which I was in. And then Cliffhanger, which was fucking good. I mean, he was, yeah, he's fucking good in it. I mean, you know, I think Renny Harlan directed that. I mean, that was good. I mean, you use Sly in the right way. He's awesome, you know, and I, I wish him success. I'm very, very grateful to him still that, that he hired me. And I remember he said, Joe Pesci. I said, no, and you're it, and you're cheaper. So I said, well, fuck, yeah, I'll do it. So it was fun, but you know, I don't mean to be negative about Sly. I mean, I just had a disagreement with that, and I turned out to be, I thought I was right. And sometimes as an actor, you got to stand up for that. But, you know, I wish him success, and I'm glad he's got that new franchise for him, and, and good for him. He's hiring a bunch of old actors, you know. Dolph That's Lundgren. F- fuck yeah, Dolph Lundgren, Antonio Banderas. Your buddy, Randy Couture. Rand, the great Randy Couture is in there. And uh, so God bless him. Good for him, man. Now, you mentioned Joe Pesci uh, was offered your part. Were there any parts over the years that you were offered that you regret? Yeah. Fuck yeah. Of course. Um, I got offered to redo uh, The Pink Panther, and I didn't do it. And it would have been like $10 million. <laughs> I, yeah. But I, I felt at the time it was disrespectful to... Uh, Peter Sellers to do that movie. And I think I was right, but you know, it would have been nice to have that money, especially in paying for my own TV series now. But I, um, I think bad Santa, I think there was a, that would have been career changing for me. I just couldn't get past the, the, the crassness of the first 16 pages. And I guess I can be kind of prudish, I guess. I just felt, I didn't see the humor in it, but it was sometimes there's a, there's a, there are some truisms in Hollywood. There's not a lot because nobody knows everything. And, you know, pretty much you never know what the public's going to like, whatever. But sometimes you can trust the material more than the people. And sometimes you can trust the people more than material. And here, when the Coen brothers are producing something, I do know that they had to go in reshoot two weeks and fix that movie. And I think, you know, when I read the script, I think that that was a necessity, but they made a fucking good movie. You get a guy like, you know, um, Billy Bob Thornton. I mean, that guy's a fucking great actor. You give that guy, I mean, I, that's one of those guys, him and Anthony Hopkins, I would pay to watch them eat lunch. That's how, you know, entertaining they are. That's the idea. You know, you want to be around guys like that, you know, and they just lift the material up. Now, I know a movie you're very proud of. It's a big stand. Yeah, I'm proud of that. I mean, it's one of the things like Bob Weinstein wanted to see it and I knew at the time was that, oh, I'm sorry, Harvey Weinstein wanted to see. And at the time I didn't have a great meeting with Bob beforehand. I, I mean, it was really, it was probably not the, probably the, the, the worst meeting I've ever had in Hollywood. He just, he wasn't very nice. And I was like, I don't want to have anything to do with him. 
uh, you know, as I just, I don't want to be in the room with that guy. I can imagine having a picture with him. And so I didn't. And that was a mistake because maybe, you know, even if I would have never saw a penny, I ended up never seeing a penny anyway. And I couldn't get it released in the United States. At that time in 2007, there was a glut of independent films and just trying to get, uh, unless you really want to throw P&A money, you weren't going to get it. And I remember calling a buddy of mine, uh, well, he's not really a buddy, but um, one of the, I won't mention his name, but the, you know, one of the distributors and presidents of uh, Sony. And he was nice enough to screen it for me, but he said, listen, Robbie, I can't spend $20 million. We'd be chasing it. In other words, to release the movie theatrically, we'd spend 20 million. We'd be chasing it just to get your 20 million bucks back or whatever. And that's a business decision. You have to admire the business decision. But like as a friend, I would have loved to have done it. You know, when they asked me to promote a movie that Adam Sandler didn't want to promote in Mexico, I fucking went. You know, but I'm not Adam Sandler. I'm Rob Schneider. So in that case, he just I just said, thank you for even considering it. And that's what you have to do. It's a business. You can't take it personal, you know, as, as uh, you know, Ben Affleck said when he was accepting his Academy Award, which I really appreciated. No grudges. So remember that, Earl. Well, that's fine. I'm like, I'll I'll share it. I have a lot more I got a few. I'm getting, trying to get over all of them. You know, one of the good things, I mean, one of the sad benefits of Robin Williams <clears throat> dying, if there are any, is that <clears throat> yesterday I talked to so many comedians I hadn't talked to and just there seemed to be a need to reconnect. And, you know, I, I don't know if he thought about that. I'm, I don't know. I probably, I'm sure he didn't, but like, you know, like I haven't I had a really nice phone call with Gilbert Gottfried this morning. I had a really nice conversation with Dr. Gonzo. I had a really nice conversation with Will Durst and Mark Pitta and Dana Carvey. And we were just trying to all find some sort of meaning and some sort of peace about it. And, um, I think the questions in all philosophy, I guess the questions are more important than the answers and you're never going to get to a hundred percent of it. I mean, I think if I had mentioned, I think in some way, like, you know, guys are allowed to go out the way they want to go out and men are allowed to go out as men. I mean, I remember reading travels with Charlie with, um, um, you know, a Steinbeck and Steinbeck, one of his last novels, if not his last novel, I think it came out in 61. And he remember him talking about how, he was in his late fifties, which is, he was like 58, which is like, you know, in your seventies now. I mean, if you compare it, you know, to what, how men live now and what they lived then. Um, he said he couldn't understand how men who were very uh, virile and had lived very manly lives and had been, you know, uh, vigorous and, 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 you know, and powerful men their entire lives would trade in that manliness and that uh, vigor uh, to basically become children to eke out a few more months of surviving. And he said, that's not for me. And he went off with his, you know, poodle and his uh, uh, kind of homemade Winnebago and went around the country to see the country that he'd been writing about for years. And he blew his brains out. And I think like, you know, you know, Hemingway, the same way. I don't think these guys, and I think Robin in the same way, like, I, I guess he wasn't physically the same person he was. I, I know he hadn't, he'd been um, not a hundred percent, you know, besides the depression. And I just don't think he saw himself as a guy who, who could, you know, handle that or who, who wanted to do that, who wanted to be an old man and, and, you know, and be, lose that power and strength and vitality. I mean, he was more than a man. He was like a bear, you know, when you saw him, he was more like a bear. He was just like, he was just this bigger than life guy. And like, the, I, you know, I, I get that. David Carradine, I was talking to uh, 
you know, when David Carradine passed away and, and you know, um, David Carradine, who I work with in Big Stan, who I loved, um, he was never going to, you know, I remember talking to, um, uh, Michael, his friend, um, um, what's the guy's name from, um, from, um, the T Tarantino movie, um, come on, what the fuck? No, 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 from the, the first big Tarantino movie that he did, uh, ground, um, uh, Reservoir Dogs, Mike. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was I was at the funeral with Michael Madsen, and Michael Madsen and I went on Larry King and talked about uh, he's not. And then I said like, "Hey, David Carradine, he's not a guy who's going to kill himself. That's, he was not that guy, you know. If it was a, you know." And I remember after we'd went on Larry King, you know, Michael came up to me and said, "You know, after we went on Larry King, nobody talked about the suicide anymore." And um, and it was weird because then Michael said to me something. So you know, David would be laughing right now because he would have loved that he was involved. His death was involved in some sort of sexual mystique, you know, and mystery. And um, but David was the same way as as Robin. You know, he wasn't a guy who was want to get old and and wanted to, you know, he, he you know he was never going to be that guy. He wanted to be, and so in in that way, I think people are allowed to, you know you can try to look for the reasons why and you can try, you're never going to find it. If you want to see something that's kind of talks about suicide in a way that people can relate to um, and, and how it's never clear. There's a movie that the most very interesting documentary is very unethical and immoral, uh, which is a very interesting uh, nonetheless, it's called the bridge. And it's about this documentary maker. It's, convinced the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, it's a commission that's in charge of the bridge. They make a lot of money and that's, it's eight bucks. It's like buying, it's almost buying like a fucking movie pass to, uh, to go across the bridge. It's like eight or 10 bucks now on the weekends. And they wanted to set up a bunch of cameras to, and they, uh, you know, uh, auspicious, you know, I guess they're, um, they were saying outwardly that they wanted to capture the Golden Gate Bridge year round uh, and the different weathers, different weather patterns and sunsets and clouds, because sometimes it's just right on that ocean, the bay and the clouds come in and you just see the tips of it sometimes. And the sunsets are just dramatic and beautiful. It's the most beautiful bridge in the world. And so they allowed to do it, but what they're really doing was they were videotaping people to do a documentary about suicide and people jump off the bridge. And so you hear these stories about these people and what they were going through. And some people maybe had a glimpse that it was going to happen. Some people had no clue. And the idea was there are no conclusions is that there are no reasons that people can pinpoint and say, this is happening that, and, and, um, this is going to happen. And, you know, what was unethical was the, the, the documentary was that they knew people who were being talked about or they were going to jump and they didn't call the police. And that's unethical. But it's still a very interesting thing to see. And, you know, that was the, you know, when uh, we talked last night, that was the thing that made me think about it. Because comedians, there is a, you know, if you're willing to risk yourself psychically to be on stage and bomb, and, <laughs> well, then you can... Um, I mean, it comes at a psychic price. I mean, it does. I mean, it's not like, you know, everybody wants to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, but uh, there's a certain place you're willing to go that most people, that's not safe, that most people aren't willing to go. There's a place of, and um, I think that does come at a price. And, and I think that comedians, you know, the, the battles that they have and the, you know, whether they're super competitive, which they can be, there's also the, the possibility and, and the likelihood of that uh, psychic weight of, uh, you know, 
tearing yourself down and thinking like, fuck my careers. I mean, you know, if you're getting older, if you're, you know, your career is not as hot as it was, or, you know, you haven't had success for a while, you start to have self-doubt. I mean, th those are the bad combination of things. And then, you know, things in your personal life, physically, you're not feeling like you were. I mean, it, it, every comedian thinks about suicide. They just do. I mean, they may never talk about that, but it's like, it's a dance that you play with and you like, it just passes through. And it's not just, you know, comedians alone, but it is a, a thought that, that dances through people's heads. I mean, half of the, the guns, you know, the, 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 um, people killed by guns in the United States, suicides, there's like 15,000, there's like 30,000 something people die from violent death in America from gunshots and half of those are suicides. So it is, it's, it's not an uncommon thing, but for comedians, I think it's a, it's a dangerous dance. And sometimes it just flirtatiously hits you. Like it hit me over the weekend. I swear to God. It's not like I, but, and sometimes you just kind of think about it for a second and it goes away. Sometimes you, you know, you don't, I wasn't like seriously considering you think of well, what I got my family and all this stuff, but you, you do think about like, ah, fuck it. You just say it sometimes as a way to shit on yourself for your set or your imperfection. I should fucking kill myself. Well, I fucking kill myself. You say it. And then sometimes it becomes more than just that. You play with it. And then for people who can't understand the self, the, the potential perception of it as extremely selfish and he's got kids and whoever commits suicide and they have kids and all this, they don't understand it is a dark, dark hole and that it, it is not a healthy place. And, and unless you're there or have been there and been close to there, you have no idea what it's like. And a lot of comedians, whether they admit it or not, they it's a dangerous dance. And then some comedians dance with it. And then you start thinking about, well, okay, well then what, how would I do it? What would the ramifications of it be? Whatever. And then hopefully, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time they come back, but there could be that time when all these, um, confluences of, um, things that are hitting them at the same time, whether it's career health, you know, some personal things and, uh, or all of those. And, uh, maybe they're in a position of real vulnerability and loneliness and let's not judge them. Well, you have to like, you know, it's interesting. That's a very good question. The first very good question you've given me. The, uh, <laughs> well, Earl, well, let me just tell you, it's like when I was doing stand up, I remember bombing at the Holy city zoo and Robin Williams actually being there that night. Okay. Earlier. And you're going, and it's like, and like, I remember bombing so badly. I remember walking by Larry Bubbles Brown, the great San Francisco comic. And he said, tumbleweed time. And I remember like, but when I was walking off the stage, it was like my ears were melting off of my head. That's the only way I could describe the humiliation that was internalized and then physicalized to like my ears are melting off my head from the bombing. It was like that kind of uh, psychic pain that was with go. Cause you could think if you're in psychic pain, that becomes physical pain. 
And so I just remember like my ears melting off me. It only lasted for like a few minutes, but it was, I mean, I remember to this day walking off after bombing at the Holy City Zoo or whatever time. <laughs> and like, uh, you know, even Larry made me laugh for that line. But I'm telling you, I do remember shortly after that saying, I cannot let this audience, no matter what, get to me below a certain place. And the only way I can do it is you have to visualize things in your life, in your career, and as a person, you know, whether it's you're on stage or not. And I just said, I'm not going to let them get to me below here. And I kind of made this mark my belt. They can affect me till there, but that's it. And then I have enough confidence and enough feeling good about myself as a person, as an actor, as a a comedian, and I'm funny enough. My friends think I'm funny. I know I'm funny. I'm not going to let them get me past here. I'm not going to let them melt my ears off my face again. And so that's kind of the place. And the same thing, you kind of have to have your guard up. But here's the thing, Earl, the people most susceptible to the pitfalls of show business are the ones most attracted to it. The Chris Farley's, the Robin Williams, the ones, you know, the, uh, you know, the Richard Jennies. These are the guys, the, you know, the uh, Giraldi's, uh, the fucking Mitch Hedberg's. These are the, Drake Sather was like, uh, my best friend in my standup years, without exception. And and his dad told me I was his best friend at his funeral through the standup years was Drake Sather, a great, great comic from Seattle. And we were both about the same age. And he got on Letterman about a year before I did. And um, that, which was a huge break at the time for us. And I just remember hanging out with him and like just writing jokes and coming up with ideas and trying to forge our way and, you know, working as middle acts. And um, even though he'd been on Letterman, he should have been headline, but we were middle acts. We're still just like trying to figure out, I mean, how do we headline? We're still kind of in awe of that. And, I remember him, I was never quite as down, but I remember he said to me, I'm depressed all the time. He said, he said, he was with his girlfriend at the time, you know, living with her. And I I think she was out of the other room and living in this place in the Western edition, which at that time was a real shithole in San Francisco where I also lived in that same area. And he said to me, Rob, the only time I'm happy is when I'm coming. And I remember thinking like, is that a bit? Is that a joke? But I looked at him and he was just like totally, totally serious. And I remember thinking, I can't do anything for him except maybe make him come. That'd be the only thing to make him happy to Yeah, that was it. But but I just remember like this is sad. Cause I'm not like that. I mean, I don't I don't I don't stay down like that. And I'm not I'm not, but there are guys that have that. And it's a it's disproportionate, I would say, in, in, you know, in comedy. It's, uh, um, so, you know, I just remember thinking, I didn't know I could lose that guy. I remember like when Chris Farley, we found him after he'd gone off the wagon uh, and uh, he had done uh, heroin. It's, you know, just a bunch of nickel bags and his body was clean. And I just remember from television, some stupid television shows, you know, you're supposed to pick him up and walk him around. It was me and Chris Rock and Adam Sandler and David Spade. And we're moving him around. We we're writing at night. And thankfully we found him and he was just, you know, so you just got to keep him slap him water face, keep him awake. And then we called the guy on his card and his wallet. And the guy came up and said, Oh yeah, he showed up and said, Oh, this is when they die. It's a good thing you found him. And I said, what do you mean? This is when they die. How does he die? How does that fucking happen? How do, what do you mean die? And I remember like, it shook me. And it, I remember like the physical, I mean, I'll never forget that. Like the hair on my back of my neck. So you mean he could die from this? I mean, I didn't even know that was a possibility because I just never, I never grew up with it. I never saw it, but yeah, I mean, so it's dangerous. So it's just like depression is dangerous. Depression is, is very similar to that kind of drug. And it's like, you know, it's, it's tough. And for people who stay there, 
You know, don't, you know, you have dips and downs and you got to feel all the, the ups and downs in life. But for people who chronically stay in that depressive state, it's tough and you can't judge them. You just, you want to be there and help them and make sure that they could reach out for it. But it is, uh, it exists. It's tough. And, uh, and unfortunately, you know, the comedians, that's why I've never agreed to do, I don't do these podcasts much and I don't do, um, Oxford University asked me to be involved in the study about comedians. And I went, no, because I don't want, you know, people shouldn't, you know, you start to peel back the onion on the comedian. It's, you know, not to be like, you know, just the stereo, you know, reinforcing the stereotype, but it's dark. And who gives a fuck? I mean, does, does the fact that Richard Pryor grew up in a whorehouse, does that really um, kind of illuminate any of his humor? I mean, whatever he got there is how he got there. I mean, I, I don't think it, it um, you know, the, the illumination factor to me in, in that is, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it does, it should take place in some Oxford study. I just don't want to be a part of it and I'm not interested in it. I, I want to see, um, I want to see the guy on stage after he's worked out. That's why I hate improv. I mean, because even geniuses like Robin Williams, the hit and miss ratio was more missed than hit. But Robin would do this thing. The only cap that you know, on Robin would people say like, oh, he's just, you know, the material that he's, he's thought it out first. And he's just making it look like improv. He's making it look like he just came up with it. Well, how fucking brilliant is that? Who could fucking do that? Make it seem like they just came up with it and brilliant and he's coming up with it and connecting it together. That's fucking brilliant. And most comedians can't fucking bring that energy and that excitement and that bravado and that, you know, writing around the razor's edge or give the appearance of writing on the razor's edge of just stuff. And, and that's what he did, you know? And so I'd like to see a prepared piece where a guy has been working on it. Like the great Dylan Moran, who's one of the world's greatest comedians, if not the world's greatest comic, he prepares something for a year and a half or, you know, probably the greatest American comic, Bill Burr, He'll do something for a year and a half. He's like, I can't do it in a year. It takes me a year and a half. And then I want to see the prepared. I want to see what he came up with. Because you ad lib and you ad lib to work on stuff and work on stuff. And then I want to see the finished version of that. It's like seeing a sketch of Picasso's as opposed to the fucking masterpiece that he ends up with. So I don't know if I'm just rambling, but I was. I didn't sleep last night. So I hope you don't mind. No, no, no. Listen, I know you got to get back to editing your show. And, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about Rob and you know, I think it's good for people to hear some of your stature talk about depression. And, and, you know. Yeah, I mean, we've all had it, and it's it's normal. I would just say for the comedians, if you, any of you comedians who are listening, if any comedians listen to Earl's podcast, and I suggest you do. He's a great guy. But um, depression is a normal part of life, and don't deny it. Don't medicate it. Deal with it. And there's a, a, a better medication than than just medicating it through drinks or drugs or even psychology, even, you know, you know, prescription, uh, you know, I think if you want to do a prescription antidepressant drug, that's a definite viable thing to do for a temporary way, but there are underlying things to deal with that, that need help. I mean, um, John Cleese was a guy who had a lot of demons and, you know, he said that fueled my, my comedy. He wrote a really terrific book called families and how to survive them. And it's a very good book. And he deals with some of the stuff that he dealt with. And, and he said when he, after years of therapy, he didn't feel as funny anymore. <laughs> so it's like, I'm still, I still need my demons. I still want to use them, but you have to use them in a way that's safe and in a way that, you know, you are very valued. I mean, I kept the clipping from Mitch Hedberg when he died. I kept it. He was 37. 
I kept it. And I, I have the one from Lenny Bruce when he died in 1966 at the age of 44, you know? Um, and these are people that are, that are angels, you know, and they're just, they can illuminate like Robin Williams, universal truths. that um, make our lives better. Well, I think that's probably the best way to end it. And uh, I mean, Rob, you're just an amazing guy and I'm sorry for your loss. And, um, you know, uh, just we'll end it there. You know, Rob Schneider's just truly an amazing person. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. And uh, please, uh, I'll uh, post it later on today on iTunes and... uh, this has been uh, probably my favorite episode ever of Inappropriate Earl, just because it meant a little more than my usual bullshit. So uh, thank you guys very much, and I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And Rob, thank you. <laughs>